0: Thank you, Barry. Barry's always prepared. Always knows what he's doing. Appreciate that. 18-year-old Julie Jones was away at college for her first semester. One day in early December, as the semester was winding down and nearing her first set of finals, Julie sent her parents an email. And here is what the email said. Dear Mom and Dad, I just thought I'd drop you a note to let you know what's going on with me. School has been tough, but I have managed due to a great guy I met. He helped me through some tough times, and I have to say, Mom and Dad, we have fallen in love. His name is Frank, but everybody calls him Switchblade but I don't really know why. Let me tell you about him, Mom and Dad. He's a really neat guy. He quit high school a few years ago to get married. That didn't work out, so he got a divorce last year. I met him when he had just gotten out of jail, but I don't know what he was in jail for. We've been going out for a couple of months, and we're thinking about getting married in the spring. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment and I think I might be pregnant. Oh yeah, I dropped out of school last week so that I could get a job to help support Switchblade and help him make his motorcycle payments since he's on disability. Here's a picture of him. I'm hoping I'll be able to finish school after we get married, but of course I'll have the baby too. Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is a lie. None of it is true. But, mom and dad, it is true that I got a C in statistics and a D in algebra. And it's also true that I need some money. Could you please send me $100? Thanks a bunch. Love, Julie. You see, Julie was smart. Now, but, kids, don't try this at home. Julie knew how to cloak and soften the bad news of a C and a D. And she needed more money. And she knew how to cloak that bad news inside some even worse news. So at the end of it, her parents are probably relieved to go, oh my goodness, it was only a C and a D. That's nothing. So that's why I say, kids, don't try that at home. Because as the parents read this email, they judged their daughter's position and their daughter's status by the world that she was describing. And to them, there appeared to be nothing about this guy named Frank or Switchblade that they should like. His background, where he came from, nothing about his appearance or his manner should attract them to him. So it reminds me that perspective is everything. We are often attracted to people by what we see on the outside alone. And perspective is really everything. Your words, your images, your preconceived notions of how things should be, those influence you. And sometimes we miss the truth. Or the good inside something because we're blinded by our prejudices and our own mental mindset of how things should be. So today as we continue our walk through the Word for 2018, we are in the middle of the book of Isaiah. I still have about 20 or 25 faithful people reading through their Bible in the year, so At the end of this year, they can say, I read my Bible through in the year. So we're in a portion, one of my favorite portions, Isaiah 53, focusing on the greatest prophetic description of what the Messiah would look like. But to those who were expecting the Messiah to be royal, or come dressed up in fancy robes, or one thing or another, they might not have recognized jesus as the messiah because he didn't match their preconceived notions ideas or thoughts so if you could turn over in your bible to isaiah 53 we're going to read a larger portion than what what ruth read and include those two verses as well is it all right to read my bible in church Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 6, I'm using an English standard version, but there's a lot of good versions, and this passage especially lends itself to some of the words that are chosen to bring it to life. So it says, who has believed what what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in this passage, we see the promised Savior being prophesied about. Isaiah is speaking as a mouthpiece for God and talking about this coming Messiah, but he's putting him in terms of not royalty and not a king, but of a suffering servant. And as he describes him, The promised Savior, the Messiah, would be just an ordinary man in appearance, looking much like those he came to save. His outward appearance would not be admirable, if anything. It would be quite the contrary. He was just ordinary looking. Which goes, uh, this contrast, the physical appearance that was told about King Saul, now if you remember, King Saul was the first king of Israel, and as it describes King Saul, or when he was just Saul, before he was actually chosen king, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, it describes Saul as a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So it sounds like they chose Saul as their king purely because he was good-looking. And then, again, when the prophet Samuel went to choose another king to replace this same man, Saul, Samuel was sent to the house of David, the house of Jesse. And as the sons of Jesse marched in front of Samuel... In 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says, When Samuel looked on Eliab, he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Because he saw him and he was like a good looking guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance But the Lord looks on the heart. So in both of these cases of Saul and then Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, people looked at someone, at that man, and they marveled at his stature and at his physical strength. But as God reminded Samuel, it is not the outward appearance, but rather it's the heart with which God is concerned. So if the Savior had come... As a royal man or a mighty man of war, people would be inclined to follow him because of his might or his money or his girth. That's a good word, isn't it? Girth. You guys ever listen to that country singer? Girth Brooks? Very well built country singer. You see, they wanted a king that had a lot of gravity. He was a man among men, taller than anybody. That's what they were looking for when they looked for a king. And it always intrigued me that nowhere in the New Testament do you have a physical description of Jesus. 22 books written in the New Testament. All of these words poured out about Jesus and salvation. And not once does somebody describe the way He looks. Now, the Bible says it it tells characteristics of him as a man, as a person. It says he hungered, he thirsted, he slept, he cried, he sighed, he was angry, he was tired. So we know he was alive, he was a person. We know He was a man. And even after the resurrection, when He was resurrected in a glorified body, He wanted people to know He was actually in a body. And so when they came, when Thomas said, I won't believe it unless I see His hands, he said, touch me. I'm real. Give me a piece of fish. I'll show you I can eat. I'm not a disembodied spirit. I am a flesh and blood Savior. You see, because life is lived in the flesh, because that's the way that God made life on this earth to be lived. There is no spirit alive without the flesh. But it never says about Jesus that, you know, He brushed His long, dark hair off of His shoulder, and He turned around, and he stood up to five feet ten inches or five or six hands tall. He weighed five stone. He, it doesn't say anywhere anything about his description. And his dark eyes turned and looked. It doesn't say that at all. The only physical description we have of Jesus is the soon incoming coming King Jesus. The prophetic passage about him coming again. So you have in Isaiah 53, the prophetic passage of a suffering servant, and then we have him in the New Testament described as hungering and thirsting and sleeping, but no physical description. And then in Revelation 1, you get this. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now I was going to describe him Double-edged sword. Now, I don't know if I'd like to meet this person the way it's describing him. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. 365 times, I believe the Bible says, Fear not. That's one for each day. Do not be afraid, I am the first, I am the last, I am the living one, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So there you have a physical description of Christ, but that's not the earthly Christ, that's the soon and coming King who was once dead and is now alive forevermore. Can I get an amen? Amen. So we have him prophetic, that there's no beauty as we look at him, that we should desire him. He, he had no majesty. He, he grew up like a root at a dry ground. And then we know he hungered and he thirsted, and then we know that he died, and then we know that the soon coming king is going to come with this sword coming out of his mouth and, and blazing with fire and wool and going to be cool. I don't know if that's really the way he's going to come or that's just the way John's trying to describe it, but that is a physical description of Jesus coming. But Isaiah gives a different side to the Messiah, gives a suffering servant side. And in verse 2 of Isaiah 53, three times he says he's not going to look like royalty. He says he has no form, He has no majesty and no beauty that we should desire him. There's nothing impressive about this Messiah. He didn't have the glorious glitz or dazzle of earthly king. He had no royal look that characterized the splendor of who he was, which was God in the flesh. He is the opposite of King Saul. He didn't look like a king at all. In the Amplified Bible, it says it this way, he had no stately form, or majestic splendor that we would look at him, he, nor handsome appearance that we, we would be attracted to him. The, early, the uh, easy reading version, which is right up my alley, says, there was nothing special or impressive about the way he looked, nothing we could see that would cause us to like him. The NIV says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So here's a great quote from uh, Ellen White. These words that I just read to you from Isaiah 52, 53 verse 2, these words do not mean that Christ was unattractive in person. In the eyes of the Jews, Christ had no beauty that they should desire him. They looked for a Messiah who would come with outward display and worldly glory, one who would do great things for the Jewish nation, exalting it above every other nation on the earth. But Christ came with his divinity hidden by the garb of humanity, unobtrusive, humble, and poor. They compared this man with the proud boasts they had made, and they could see no beauty in him. They did not discern the holiness and purity of his character. The grace and virtue revealed in his life did not appeal to them. So if you're in outward display, as in the New Testament you see that the Pharisees were, then to see a humble man who had nothing would probably not appeal to you. Jesus said about the Pharisees, if you pray to be seen in public, if you stand on the street corner and shout out your prayers three times a day, then you have received your reward in full. If you live a life to be seen and have people applaud you for what they can see, you can probably find some way to get that applause, whether it's your clothing or your money or your car or the way you pray or any of those things. But the inward character... Of a servant is not very discernible to just everyone. And some people will actually despise you and look down on you because you have the character of a servant. Then she goes on to say, Ellen White, think of Christ's humiliation. He took upon himself fallen, suffering human nature, degraded and defiled by sin. He took our sorrows bearing our grief and shame. He endured all the temptations wherewith man is beset. Here's a great line. He unified humanity with divinity. A divine spirit dwelt in a temple of flesh. He united himself with the temple, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us because by so doing he would associate with the sinful, sorrowing sons and daughters of Adam. So rather than coming and looking for applause and being born in a palace, he chose to be born in a stable. He was coming for the opposite of applause. It says he would be despised and rejected. His suffering would not be small, just a small momentary part of his life, but rather the characterizing feature of his life would be that he suffered. He would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, sin always brings about sorrow, grief, suffering, and shame. When Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately hid because they were ashamed. They they said it. And so when the suffering servant came, he experienced the suffering and the shame of sin, though the sin that he suffered for was not his own. So it was the promised Savior who would receive the piercing and being crushed in the chastisement that we deserve. The suffering servant would take upon himself the iniquity of us all. So what rightly belonged to us? Sin suffering, shame, was willingly placed upon Christ. So Christ took what we deserved and gave us what he deserved. He took our sin and gave us his eternal life. And that, my friends, is the gospel message. And so if somebody says to you, what does it mean about the gospel message? That's essentially what it is. Jesus died for your sins and offers you eternal life. It says then in verse 3 that we treated him as one from whom men hid their faces. So people shunned him as if he had a horrible disease. So when people came looking for the Messiah, they didn't really see it in Jesus. But John the Baptist saw it. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it was noticeable to those who had eyes to see. And you know who else recognized him as the Son of Man? The demons. The demons would say, We know who you are. You're the Holy One. You're the anointed one. You have come. And they said, said, please don't torture us before the appointed time. So the demons knew who he was. And then the Pharisees would say, are you you the one? Do a sign for us. So the people who should have been looking weren't looking in the right places because they were looking for the pomp and the circumstance and the sashes and the, the money and the royalty and being above people rather than being with the people. So if you want to be like Christ, then serve. It's really that simple. The church is a place where you come in as a sinner, then you become saved, and then you serve. And if you come in and think that church is a matter of you sitting in the pew, then you haven't experienced the full gospel message. Because the message is to come in, be saved, and then serve. Serve other people and tell them. The gospel message is just one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. But yet there was nothing to be noticed about his appearance. Jesus said, foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. As far as we know, once he left uh, his home in Nazareth, he had no home. He had nothing. In fact, when they said, we have met him and he has come from Nazareth, somebody said, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? When they buried him, they buried him in a tomb that was not even his own. So even though Jesus was going around healing the people and forgiving their sins, Isaiah 53 says we considered him stricken, beaten, and afflicted by God. So this is the essence of what people said when Jesus was on the cross. He deserved it. He's dying on a cross. He must have done something wrong. He is dying for his own sins. In fact, they even said to him, you can save others, but you can't save yourself. Come down from that cross. The people thought it was right. Jesus was on the cross and God had put Jesus on the cross for his own sins and his own errors to show you that the work of the Messiah is not recognized by the people that he came to save, or by only a very few. So Isaiah emphasizes, as you read on in Isaiah 53, that the guilt is our guilt, not the guilt of the servant. We went astray like wandering sheep. We deliberately turned from the path, not by accident. We have turned. We made a conscious decision to turn from the Lord. There's no one who is, under, who is not under this condemnation. All have gone astray like sheep. Everyone has turned from the way of the Lord. We are the reason for the suffering of the servant. It is our guilt, not the servant's guilt, and his death is for our sin. And until you realize that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you haven't understood and and enjoyed the gospel message. Until you see yourself as in dire need of a Savior, you haven't experienced the salvation message. Until you realize that you are in an emergency situation and you need help, it's not my mother, it's not my brother, but it's me, O oh Lord. I'm the one standing in the need of prayer. I'm the one standing in the need of salvation. Until you realize that there's a fire going on and you're the one caught in the fire, you haven't understood the gospel message. I'll close with this story. A long time ago, in a land far, far away, When I was a young student, I was working with psychiatric patients back in Columbus, Ohio, which is my hometown, go Bucks. And part of my training to get a two-year mental health degree, I think it was called, was to work in hospitals with different patients. So I was doing one quarter with psychiatric patients. Now, sometimes when you work with psychiatric patients, Sometimes you get to take some of them out on outings or trips or excursions or whatever they might call it. I was one of those people that got to plan the trips and take people out. So we had a group of about 20 people that were allowed to leave the unit this day. And we decided to take the people to downtown Columbus to go up into a very tall building called the Borden building, Borden Milk, I don't even know if Borden Milk is around anymore, but we were going up into the Borden building to the top floor to see out, and then we were going down to one of the floors, they were going to show us how they make a commercial, you know, how they they make the milk go, splash, pouring the cereal, milk on the cereal. So we go up to the top of the Borden building, the 32nd floor out of 32 floors, and we're on the top floor looking all around Columbus, which is a beautiful city. And it's me and three or four staff and about 25 psych patients. And all at once we hear a siren. So we hear a a siren like a fire truck, and and these were probably the days when the sirens were like, Somewhere in there, the siren changed, didn't it? Now it's going, I don't know when that happened. Anyway, we're standing there looking out the windows because it's all glass on the 32nd floor, so you can see. And somebody goes, Oh, look, there's a fire truck. So we're all looking. We can see the fire truck this way, that way, turning. We go, oh, yeah, there's a fire truck. And I go, look, there's another fire truck over there. So now we go, isn't that cool? There's a fire truck. Two fire trucks. Look, there's another one. There's the third fire truck. And they're all. And then we're all, look at them, looking, they're getting closer, they're getting closer. Oh, look, they're stopping right at the bottom of our building. So I can look down and see three or four fire trucks parked right outside the Borden building. Well, I'm up on the 32nd floor with a group of psychiatric patients. So I got an axe, and I broke the window, and I lowered a rope down over the side, and I said, no, I didn't. See you guys later. And I went all by myself, and that's the end of the story. They all died in the fire. Now, I don't even know what, I think it was, uh, there was a fire in the kitchen. There really was a fire. But I was very amused by the view. It was a beautiful view. And I was very amused by the view and hearing fire trucks in the distance and watching them weave through the streets of downtown Columbus. That was very interesting to me because I'd never been up that high and watched fire trucks come. But then when I realized they were coming to where I was, all at once the problem became more real to me. You see, when I realized that it was my emergency and when I realized that it was my fire, then all at once I sat up and paid attention. And all at once, I'm like, okay, now how do I get out of here? I love you psych patients, but I am going by myself. Everybody's for themselves. Where's the exit? Okay, there's the exit sign. You see, because once I knew I was the one in trouble, then all at once I needed to find a way out. And that's sort of like the gospel message. Oh, you're not on top of the Borden building, but you are in something that is destined to fall. You are in something that is destined to end. You are in something that won't last forever. And until you realize that you are the one in need, it's not the person next to you, it's you. You are the one who needs to come in contact with this suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who was born to a virgin in a, a uh, they put her in? It's going to say a cradle, a manger. Thank you. My goodness, I don't even know the basic. Words in this story. He was born in a borrowed cradle, a manger, and lived his life without a home because the Son of Man has nowhere to live his head, died on a cross that was not his, placed in a tomb that was not his, but resurrected to the glory that is his. And so until you realize that you are the one in need of salvation, that you are the one in the midst of the fire, it is not your brother, and it is not your sister, and it's me, oh Lord. Because this suffering servant did all this out of love. So it's interesting when you see somebody like this who's very humble, you have two thoughts. While they are exceptionally good or they are really kind of stupid, like why would they do that? And you kind of evaluate that because there was no beauty about Him, no outward appearance that we should desire Him. So we have to see His inner character of love. We have to realize that He knows us by name. He knows who we are because He lived the human experience. And because of that, we can say, Lord Jesus, I want to accept Your salvation. I want to accept Your love. I don't deserve it, but by grace... I want to be saved. I want to be in relationship with you. So I pray that you would claim that promise today. And if there is anybody here that would like to claim that promise for the very first time or for the hundredth time or to renew themselves to that desire to serve Christ, I would invite you to come down front right now. If not, we'll proceed. But if somebody would like to give their heart to the Lord or renew their covenant with the Lord to come down here right now. song it's me it's me it's me Oh Lord come down standing in the need of prayer it's me it's me come on in standing in the need of prayer It's it's not my brother not my brother not my sister but it's me Oh Lord standing in the need of prayer not my mother Not my mother, not my father, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the blessings that come as you draw us to the cross. Jesus, there was no majesty or form or beauty in your outward appearance. You came as a man. You didn't appear to be a king, but your inner character of love and purity and beauty And sacrificial agape love is what draws us to you. You became, you were God in the flesh. You laid aside your divinity and took on humanity. And I pray for each one that came down, for each one that didn't come down, Lord. You know our hearts. You know what we need. But it is our place to claim your salvation. It is our need to be filled with your grace. It is our need to be filled with the Holy Spirit who takes us and molds us and steps on those parts of us that are old and ugly and need to be discarded. And he calls us to follow him in renewed vigor and renewed energy. Pray for each one, boys, girls, men, women, that you would fill us and may we be your hands. May the suffering servant soon come back as a conquering king like Revelation 1 described. May you be the first and the last and the Alpha and the Omega and the Living One who holds the keys to life and to death. Thank you for that privilege of being your sons and your daughters. We pray and give thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming down.